108, that's Acts chapter 13. <clears throat> In this part of Acts, we have an account of uh, the early leaders of the church, Paul and Barnabas, as uh, they make an outreach tour uh, in the uh, northern Mediterranean region. And we pick it up in the middle of, of their tour there. So it's Acts chapter 13, uh, reading from verse 42. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse on him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. Since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles, for this is what the Lord commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is in the biblical book of Romans at chapter 11. And we're reading from verse 1 to 10. In this section of the book of Romans, uh, the um, uh, early, early church leader Paul has been looking at the relationship between the Jewish nation and uh, God's uh, newly revealed gospel. <clears throat> Page 100 and, uh, 1138, Romans chapter 11, headed in our Bibles, the remnant of Israel. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the Bible says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Philip, thank you very much. Uh, well, do keep that uh, page in the Bibles open, 1138. And we're now going to pray and ask for God's help to understand it. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you that you promised to speak to us through your word, the Bible, Please, would you help us to understand, and not just to understand, but to live out what this means in our life. For we ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Um, one of the things about being an artist is that you use, you get used to being rejected. Your work gets rejected. And um, the history books are all uh, full of all sorts of famous artists who at one time or another had work rejected. People weren't interested in um, Guys like Andy Warhol, uh, Picasso, Monet, Cezanne, all had works rejected outright by the art world before they were famous. Um, But undoubtedly the saddest and probably the most famous story of this artistic rejection is that of uh, Vincent van Gogh, who we see here. Um, And famously, by the time he had died, he had only sold one painting for the equivalent of about £2,000, Levain Rouge, which today is where it's priceless. It's worth, any of his paintings are worth well above £60 million. But in his lifetime, he never saw any of that. Uh, Van Gogh knew rejection, though perhaps like any other artist. Um, not only with his paintings, not only were they not seen to be of any interest, but in his personal life too. Constantly rejected from, from careers, from relationships. Now, it's, it's one thing to be rejected for something you've produced. Uh, and perhaps you know that. Perhaps you've, you've worked hard in, in the workplace or at school and you've had something that you've done or, or a proposal rejected. Now, that's hard. But I think it's even harder to be rejected for who we are, isn't it? At the most profound level. Now, rejection is, is part of everyday life. We, we all experience it uh, at one time or another, maybe at school or at work. Maybe we've actually experienced it in our relationships. Maybe we've been rejected by someone. But what about this idea of being rejected at at the most profound level possible? That of who we are as people. Now, to be rejected at that level requires someone to know us at that level. And the Bible tells us that the only person who knows us deeply, even more than we know ourselves, is God. We don't even know ourselves that well. Do you ever find yourself surprised by something that you do? I I never see myself doing that. Hard to believe that about yourself. We don't know ourselves all that well. Perhaps uh, people in our family and friends know us slightly better, but the Bible tells us that God knows everything about us perfectly. That is, he knows the things that we do. He knows our hopes. He knows our fears. He knows the things that we love But he also knows the things that we regret. He knows the things that we try and keep secret from everyone, even those closest to us. He knows them all. So if he knows that stuff about us, actually we should care what he thinks about us more than anyone else. So how is God going to react to what he sees in in you, in me, in any of us? Will he reject me at the end of the day because of what he sees? Well, if we want to find out the answer to this, we need to have a look at what the Bible is saying here about how God has treated his people in history, the Jewish people. So we're going to be thinking today, will God reject me? Well, let's firstly find out by thinking, has God rejected his people? Have a look with me just to the first bit of what Paul says in chapter 11. Paul posits this question. I ask then, did God reject his people? Now, let's pause there. Now, there is a reason why God could have rejected his people, the Jews, because they have rejected him, or at least a lot of them have rejected him. This is 2,000 years ago. 
Jesus tells this story in Matthew's gospel in chapter 22. He tells the story of a king who prepares a luxurious banquet for his son. He sends out his servants into the kingdom to bring them in, but they refuse. They make up all sorts of excuses. They reject the offer of the king and this once-in-a-lifetime banquet. So instead, the king's got all this food ready. He sends out his servants into all the slums and in all the dodgy places, the place where you wouldn't imagine a king would go to invite people to a party for his son. And he finds instead people who aren't going to make excuses and reject this amazing offer. And instead, they go in to the banquet. Now, Jesus tells that story because that is what he experienced. The Bible says he came to those that were his own, but they didn't receive him. That is, most people rejected Jesus. We've just been singing about the Messiah, God's promised king. God had sent his promised king, his son, to his chosen people, the Jews. And while some of them did believe, as we're reading here, some of them did believe, many of them rejected him. Not just the Jews, but but many non-Jews rejected Jesus. But for the Jews, for many of them, Jesus didn't fit in with what they were expecting. Now, God could have just rejected them. Why not? He's been rejected. Why doesn't he just reject them? Well, I wonder, how do you respond when someone rejects you? If someone rejects something that you do or, or who you are, if you're anything like me, rejection hurts, doesn't it? So we might say, oh, do you know what? Who needs them? Who cares? I don't care if they reject me or not. But secretly we do. We do care when someone rejects us. It hurts. We don't actually want to admit it, that it really hurts, but it does. Perhaps sometimes we even want to get even. We want to reject them in some way. If they, if they show us up, we want to show them up. But what does God do? Have a look at the second bit of verse 1. Does God reject his people who have rejected him? Paul says, by no means, no way. He says, after all, I am an Israelite myself. I am a Jew myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says God hasn't outrightly rejected his people, even though they've rejected him. And, and the witness to that is Paul himself, who is a Jew. He is a sign of God's faithfulness. Paul was living proof that God hadn't rejected the entire Jewish people. And this is amazing because actually on the outside, Paul was really opposed to what God was doing in the church. Now, now the church was, still is. It is the people who follow Jesus. It's not just the building. This is the church building. But it's the people who follow and trust in Jesus. And elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul tells us that he had rejected that. He hated that idea that the way to be made right with God was through trusting in Jesus as God's way. That's the whole theme of the book of Romans, that we are made right with God by trusting in Jesus as God's way. Paul hated that idea to begin with. And, and he, he tried to stamp out, he tried to persecute those people who, were, who believed that, those people who were teaching that. He would round up Christians and, and have them arrested. And, and he gave a great big thumbs up when Christians were being killed. Perhaps you saw in, in, in the news over Easter about what happened in, in Sri Lanka uh, with these churches that were attacked. Paul would have approved of what had happened there. He was like, yes, get rid of those Christians. You see, the rejection of God's way led to his anger 
at those who were obeying God's way. But even so, even though Paul was hardened, he didn't want to do things God's way, God still had a plan for Paul, which gives us hope as well. Jesus appeared to Paul while he was going to the city of Damascus, uh, still in Syria today. And when Jesus appeared to him, he changed Paul's life. And from that moment on, Paul no longer went around persecuting and trying to get rid of Christians. Instead, he went around sharing the very message of God's way through Jesus that he had once tried to destroy. Amazing. A complete turnaround of life by meeting with Jesus. Isn't it amazing? God's faithfulness to a guy like Paul. So different to us. When we get rejected, we want to reject back. But God's not like that. He's not so quick to reject as we are. Instead, he is faithful. Well, why is this? Well, verse 2 tells us. It says, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Basically, what Paul is saying is God hasn't got rid of the people that he had chosen. Now, that foreknew, uh, chosen, that's the idea of before you were born, before you've done anything else, God has decided that you would be in a relationship with him. Now, why is this important? Perhaps we don't like this idea, but actually it's really good news. Let me tell you why. Without this idea that God has chosen us, we would have no confidence that God wouldn't just choose to reject us. Think about a present. Think about a present, or last time you got a present. Or imagine that you get home from the service today and you look to your, 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 the front of your house and you see that someone has brought you a brand new 14 million pound Bugatti sports car. Who knows? Imagine someone has bought you that and left you the keys, just posted through the letterbox. That car is now yours. And it costs you nothing. I know you wouldn't believe it, but it costs you nothing. It is a free gift. Someone has chosen you to be the recipient of that gift. Something that you could never, certainly I could never afford, even in my wildest dreams. And this is what we have here. Something given to you. You have been chosen to receive this and it doesn't cost you a penny. Now, a relationship with God is far more valuable, let's chuck that away, than even a 14 million pound sports car. Because that sports car is great, but actually it's going to need probably quite a lot of fuel. And the insu- I dread to think where the insurance is. But actually one day it's going to rust. And you're going to have to take it down to the scrappy and get rid of it or sell it on eBay or something. But actually a relationship with God lasts forever. It's never going to rust. It's never going to fade. It's longer lasting than any sports car. And it is 100% free to you. Paul is saying that God has chosen you to receive this gift. You don't have to pay for it. But it did cost. It cost him dearly. And we'll come back to that in just a sec. But so the answer, has God rejected his people in the past? The answer is no, and Paul is living proof of that. Well then, what about, what about for me? What about for you here today? How can I be sure that he won't reject me? He hasn't rejected his people in the past. How can I be sure that he won't reject me? So if that's how it starts, it's God's gift to us, how does it carry on? How can I know that at some point in the future, God won't actually decide to change his mind? No, I'd like those keys back, please. No, actually, 
you're not chosen anymore. How can I know that at some point in the future, God won't actually decide to change his mind and reject me or tomorrow in the future at some point? Well, listen to what Paul says just to the second bit of verse 2 into verse 3. He says, don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah, so back in the Old Testament, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they are trying to kill me. You see, the Bible says that God will keep a faithful people going even when it is really hard. Now, Elijah that Paul is talking about here was one of God's prophets in the Old Testament. And Elijah was was prophesying at a really, really hard time when everyone seemed to have rejected God. The king, the the prophets, the priests, they seemed to have all completely rejected worshipping the true God. And instead, we hear how they were worshipping false gods, gods that the other nations in the Middle East were worshipping at that time. We see one named there at the end of, of verse four, Baal worshipping these false gods, uh, idols that were made of, of wooden and stone. If you've ever been to, to other countries or maybe sort of uh, museums and you've seen these statues, these idols of gods that, that people would worship made of wood and stone. And the followers of these gods believed that you'd, you had to do some really nasty things in order to please these gods. And in some cases, commit human sacrifice. In some cases, archaeologists would tell us, Commit child sacrifice, your own child sacrifice to please this God of wood and stone. That is who God's people were choosing to worship instead of the living God. But they were also, not only did they approve of this, they were also removing anyone like Elijah who wouldn't reject God. These were really dark days and and Elijah experienced that firsthand. Where it seemed that everyone had rejected God and Elijah who was God's prophet. And in this passage that Paul's talking about, Elijah is really depressed. He is really depressed, even to the point of wishing that he was dead. He was facing a real pressure for for following, for believing in the living God. And actually today, Christians face pressure. Like in Sri Lanka, they may face that pressure of of actually being killed for putting their hand up in public and and saying that actually, yeah, they, they do believe in Jesus. They are a Christian. It's, it's hard today. It's hard here in 2019 in Hove, maybe in a different way. But, but it's hard standing up in work or at school or sometimes even in our homes saying that we're a Christian. People might think about us or treat us differently. They might remove ourse- themselves from us, go all quiet when they see us coming. They might be thinking, you're one of those Christians. You're just homophobic. You're bigoted. I know what you're about and I'm going to keep away. Or how can you believe all that stuff in the Bible? Surely science has proven that's all a load of nonsense. It makes it hard, like Elijah found, to follow God. And I think, in personal experience, I found it really hard in my teenage years, between about 14 to 18, particularly when you really care what other people think about you. Now, when I, when I became 19, all of a sudden I stopped caring what people think about me. Um, but, but it's still there. You still do care what, what people think about you, don't you? You don't like to be outcast. No one wants that. And think about what we've promised today on, on Abigail's behalf. That when Abigail becomes a teenager, I wonder, parents, godparents, are you guys ready to be there to help her through those, those hard years? When it re- it's really important to her what, what her friends and family think of her. 
Will you be able to teach her that? It's more important what her Heavenly Father thinks of her. I hope so. I pray so. And I'm confident that you will. But there will be times in all of our lives when we will be tempted to reject God for whatever pressure. But is it just down to us? Because if it is, it seems a bit powerless, doesn't it? Well, let's think about what Paul says, though. Is God powerless? Is he just hoping that, you know, that Abigail, that, that any of us will just, just try and our, our best to hold on to him and he's powerless? Well, look at verse 4. What was God's answer to, to Elijah, as depressed and as miserable as he was? He says, I've reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. 7,000 who haven't rejected me. They are not worshipping these false gods. Elijah, you're not on your own. Even when many were rejecting God, God was holding on to those who believed. Even under such extreme pressure. Great to hear about those churches in Sri Lanka that a week or two afterwards, Christians were back there worshipping despite the fact that they would looked around on a Sunday morning and noticed an awful lot of their number were no longer there. God was helping them to return to church, to worship him, to do what is right. Making sure that, as, as, verse, as verse 5 says, that there is a remnant, there is a group, there are people who are still remaining faithful to him. Now, what this is saying then is that it's not about our ability to hold on to God. What a, what a terrifying place to be, thinking about, I just hope I can hold on to God long enough throughout my life and that I've done enough when I die. But actually, what is God saying? He's saying it's the opposite. It's not about our ability to hold on to him. It's about God's ability to hold on to us. This is great news. He will never let go of us. That was the case then and it's still the case today. God is able to keep those who love him from one day rejecting him. What great news. And all of this is because of his grace, verse 6. This is this remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. See that word? Grace, grace, grace. What is Paul saying here? Well, he's saying that the reason we can know God in the first place and stay faithful to him isn't because we have the strength in ourselves. No, it's 100% his grace, his gift. Now, he says it's not by works, it's by grace. What's the difference? What does he mean? Well, we had a wedding service here yesterday. And, and imagine if you weren't here, imagine you were at this wedding service with, with the bride and the groom looking nervous and excited. And it gets to the vows. Everyone's quiet. They're listening in. Imagine the groom saying this. I take you as my wife as long as I feel like it, as long as I get my needs met. As long as you live up to my expectations. Imagine how the bride would feel. Crushed. But that's what a relationship with God based on works looks like. We think that God is demanding that of us. That if, if we try our hardest and, um, and we hope that at the end of the day we've done enough to please him. To hold on to him. But that's not what the vows are, is it? We know that. It's I take you to be my wife, to love and to cherish, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, till death us do part. And that is grace. That is, I will be whoever I've promised to be, even when you're not. And marriage 
is a pointer. It's a sign to the greater love and grace that God has for us. And that's how we can be sure that God will not reject us. Now, Abigail's been baptized today in the confidence and prayers that God will never let go of her. Not because of her good works, unable to do that at the stage she's in, but because of his grace. A grace that as she grows up, she will continue to trust in and not reject. Because he will help her at every stage. And that can be true of any one of us. Today, any one of us who is willing to admit that we can and should trust Jesus. That's how we can be sure that he won't reject us. Well, then why should we not reject him? We, we may heard this and think this is all fair enough, but, but actually we're still thinking, God, I still want to keep you at arm's length. I'm not that interested in what you have to say. Well, there's two reasons that Paul gives us why we shouldn't want to reject him. So I hope... These are ringing in your ears today. The first reason is, if we do reject God, we really face a bleak future. It isn't a good outlook. Have a look at verse 7. He says, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. What Paul is saying, let's go down and just have a look at a few of those reasons, verse 7 to 10, about why we wouldn't want to reject God. Paul says in verse 7, the Israelites tried hard in their works to earn God's favour, but it didn't work because that's not how God works. In fact, the only ones who succeeded were those who were chosen, people like Paul, who gladly received God's grace. The others, we heard, were hardened. They, They were stiffened. They were stubborn. They wouldn't receive what God was offering them. They didn't want the keys to that car. No, you can take it back. I don't want it. There's a catch. Well, they, they were hardened like, like flowers that would choose to take their roots out of the soil. They just wither up and die. Instead, their ignorance led to blindness and their arrogance to deafness. And the things that they used to try to judge others by became the things that they in turn were judged by. They tried to demand that people would live a perfect life. You can't do that. How's that working out for you? And in closing their eyes to God, verse 10, they became blind. Now, I I love the the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Um, I love the way they make me feel. I love now reading them to my children, Ben and Sammy, who are six and five. And, And it's just so exciting, the stories. But what I love about them and what now my boys pick up on is, Daddy, that sounds like Jesus. And... I love how, how they, they help me to think about what God has done for me and, and wrap that up in a story. Now, in the last Chronicle of Narnia, in, in the final battle, there's this bit where Aslan, who, who's like Jesus, um, lays out this amazing feast, like the feast we were thinking about earlier. And there are all these dwarves there, all these, all these mythical creatures there, who he's invited to receive from this feast. But they don't see it that way. They see that this terrifying lion is trying to poison them with this food. They've become hardened. They've become blind. It started off at first just with this suspicion. And more and more it became, actually, no, we don't want this. And even the taste of the food was like poison in their mouth. Despite the fact that everyone else could see it was this beautiful banquet laid out for them to enjoy. But they rejected the feast. They didn't want the good stuff that Aslan had to offer. It started off by wincing at him, but then then it led to full black blindness. 
and they couldn't see anything. This is the first reason why we shouldn't want to reject God. Because if we do, we reject the source of all light, of all love and all life. Three things we all need for, for, for living, don't we? We need love, we need light, we need life. And if we reject ourselves from the source of those three things, love, light and life, what are we left with? Well, we're not left with light, we're left with darkness. We're not left with love, we're left with hate. And we're not left with life, we're left with death. Who of us wants that? That's the first reason. We have a bleak future if we choose to reject God. And the second reason is, well, see what rejection Jesus experienced for us. Just a few weeks ago, we were were thinking about Easter and and Good Friday uh, a few days before. And uh, in Matthew's Gospel, he tells us this about what happened on Good Friday. While Jesus was, was nailed to a cross... From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? Jesus deserved no rejection from God. He had done he had never done a single thing to warrant God's rejection, his turning away. But that's not why he's experiencing rejection on the cross. It's because he was rejected so that we can be accepted. He was rejected so that we might be accepted. That's why we don't want to reject God. Because he went to that length of his son experiencing rejection himself so that we wouldn't have to. Believing that means that you never need to fear rejection from God. You don't need to fear God one day rejecting you because any rejection you would have faced, well, that's been dealt with 2,000 years ago on a cross in Jerusalem. That's great, isn't it? That is grace. That is God's free gift to you. You just need to hold your hands out and say, yes, I want that. And if you do want that, why don't you speak with someone who uh, you came with today, speak with me or David or someone on on the team. We can uh, help you think more about this if this is something you want to explore i hope it is we're actually going to sing in just a moment a verse that picks up on this and we'll let me use it as as a final prayer as we finish one day they led him up calvary's mountain one day they nailed him to die on a tree suffering anguish despised and rejected bearing our sins my redeemer is he Thank you, Jesus. Amen.